And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like My First Million. My First Million is hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry. They feature famous guests. They discuss how companies made their first million and then some. They brainstorm new business ideas based on the hottest trends and opportunities in the marketplace. Here are some of the topics they talk about. If you like any of these, you will love the show. Three profitable business ideas that you should start in 2022. Drunk business ideas that could make you millions. Asking the founder of Grammarly how he built a $13 billion company or SaaS companies that anybody can start. If these topics are up your alley, go check out My First Million. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today, my guest is Andy Paul. He is a sales professional with more than 30 years experience as a VP sales, sales executive in multiple companies ranging from Fortune 1000 to technology startups as a founder and principal of the Sales Action Group. He's consulted with numerous CEOs to help them optimize and modernize their sales process. He is also the host of Accelerate Your Sales. It is the number one sales podcast with over 2 million downloads to date. He's the author of Zero Time Selling and Amp Up Your Sales. They're both Amazon bestsellers. He's the author of the upcoming novel, Sell Without Selling Out. He is a top sales influencer. He has 200,000 followers, uh, number one sales podcast, number eight on LinkedIn's list of top 50 global sales experts to follow. Needless to say, he has some opinions about sales. So what do we speak about? So we spoke about some of the concepts in his upcoming novel, uh, upcoming book, Sell Without Selling Out. We spoke about how sales hasn't really progressed that much in the past 30 years from the days of ABC, Always Be Closing. What has gone wrong? Why are sales reps not more potentially ethical or not as productive as they should be in a modern sales environment? We spoke about what selling out means, uh, listening to the old sales dogma and why it won't move the needle on sales. It won't help you if you're a sales manager, a traditional sales rep, or an entrepreneur. Uh, We spoke about the issue with persuasion. It's a blunt instrument. It's a last resort instrument that sellers use when they don't know how to influence properly. And then we spoke about what sellers should be doing in a modern sales environment. So how to sell in and not sell out, how to focus on connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity, uh, how to be a top performer, how to focus on being productive in a sales environment, how to make sure that you're still meeting and exceeding all your numbers, all your revenue without 
creating a really poor buyer's experience. So this is a masterclass on the future future of sales. It should be what sales is, but it's the future of sales, where sales should go, and what a sales organization, sales process, and sales experience should feel like. So this, again, this is Andy Paul. He is the author of Selling Without Selling Out. Yeah, my first sales job was selling women's shoes at JCPenney's as a high schooler. So that was that was a stark introduction to sales. <laughs> and I mean, it's in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was a, a holiday fill-in. And so my first day on the job uh, in late November is the first major snowstorm of the season moved in. Moved in, and and this was the sign for every woman within. 30 miles to come to JCPenney and buy their winter boots. So literally the first day I was, <laughs> I forget how many people, dozens and dozens of customers that I was serving. And I knew how to do the foot measuring device and, and so on. But uh, yeah, as a 16 year old boy, I was, <laughs> I was thrown in the deep end of uh, touching women's legs and feet to help them into the boots. <laughs> it was sort of an interesting day. <laughs> that was the first, that was the first, uh, that was your first sales gig. That was your first. That was your first job. Was that your first job? Uh, first sales gig. No, I, first sales I was gig, uh, okay. lifeguard and swimming coach and so on during the summer. Um, All right. So, what what made you uh, eventually go down this career path of sales? Just fell into it, like many people. Yeah, I graduated from college. I did. I literally had no no job plans at all when I graduated from graduated from college. I spent the summer working at the university. I went to school and sort of got to the point where they offered me a full-time job. I thought, nah, I don't want to work here. So I went over to the career placement center and there were jobs from all these big, at the time, big tech companies, IBM, Xerox, Burroughs, which was the second largest computer company, HP and so on. And said, so what the heck, you know, I'll, of course, they didn't call them sales jobs. That was the thing that was interesting. They were all marketing management training programs. So they very, very carefully didn't mention anything about sales. And it wasn't until I really sort of got into the interview process that I thought, oh, yeah, this is really a sales job. Oh, well, let's try it. <laughs> I had nothing else going on at the time. Um, what was when you walked into these marketing management training programs, what was sales? What was sales then? Because I'm going to showcase that sure. dichotomy and the absolute difference in, in what sales is now. Well, so for us in the company I worked for at the beginning, it was about cold calling. And so we had to sort of serve an apprenticeship where we sold uh, at the time, the company I was with Burroughs, there was a big mainframe computer manufacturer and, and so on is everybody had to start off by selling. They had these legacy products that were these desktop adding machines about the size of small microwave ovens. And they were hugely overpriced for the time because they were selling for, let's say roughly $300 a, a unit. And you could go to your local office supply store and buy a handheld calculator for, you know, 50 bucks or 60 bucks at the time. So we had to go out and sell a certain amount of that product, like $5,000 worth uh, before we could get, approved to go get trained to sell computer systems. So we got a little bit of sales, two weeks of sales training and then thrown on the streets and just prospected. So I, I was in the Bay Area, I was based in Oakland, I'd drive to the East Bay Area, I'd drive to uh, 
Fremont, Union City, Hayward, somewhere. I'd park in a business park. I'd get out, lock the car, and with the desktop batting machine under one arm and my flip chart portfolio under the other, I'd go cold call. 20, 30, 40, 50 cold calls a day. And how were you trained originally on how to close a deal when you did this cold calling? Well, yeah, it's that's something I deal with in my new book is I know so you've been on the job about <laughs> about uh, a week or two. We got sent to the one of our national training centers. In this case, it was in Pasadena, California, and two weeks of sales training. And uh, a lot of it consisted of watching a series of, of videos uh, put on by this I call him a slick-haired con man sales trainer, um, a guy named Lita Boy that maybe some people still hear of. Uh, it just sort of made my screen, skin crawl watching him. And then, yeah, endless sort of role plays and some product product knowledge training. But a lot of role playing, a lot of watching Lita Boy uh, sort of bluster his way through objections and, and so on. And, it, yeah, I, I did not identify with that at all. <laughs> and it, it made me think, huh, not sure this is for me because, you know, everybody was trying so hard to be salesy, right? I mean, this is everybody in the, was like, you know, had to put on a, a hat and a costume and be like a used car salesperson. And uh, that just wasn't me. Uh, and apparently the instructors of the class thought so as well, because they told my manager after the fact that they thought I should be fired <laughs> because I wasn't salesy enough. I was too analytical. But it just sort of gave me the determination to say, well, there's got to be a way to do this, you know, to make sales work for me. And it was really almost from the beginning that I sort of determined that, yeah, I'd find a path that, that worked for me, that would enable me to succeed in this profession, even if it was just something I alone did. Why would you want to, because I feel like your current uh, version of sales and what you do speak about in your book, and we'll get into that later, mm -hmm. but that version of sales is more a modern way of looking at sales. It's a much more modern lens of what sales is. What What's curious to me is why you went against the grain when sales, uh, I, I don't want to put a timestamp on it, and God forbid, I don't <laughs> want to date you at all, but like X years ago was right. a very much of a cold calling ABC um, used car salesman, all the negative stereotypes that you uh, associate with sales. A lot of that came from a certain culture that's evolved and progressed and become a lot better. Um, well, but how that's did you, the question is, is has, has it, has it become, has it become, that's another question. Yeah, I, I would argue but, it hasn't. And so I would make the case, really? I do make the case in my book is that, that, yeah, I think that, that actually it's become worse. I think we went, I think that that you know the sort of over reliance on on process and technology in an effort by many in sales don't want to sort of take the human out of the equation has has sort of amplified these bad behaviors. You know the the pitch first, to listen to to respond rather than listen to understand. You know just the lack of of any sort of making connection with another human being understanding that your job is to be there to help under, make the buyer understand, help the buyer understand what's most important to them as opposed to just pitching and flogging your product. To me, the, the underlying behaviors are the same. And in fact, I think we've amplified the impact of it with technology. And I, th and I think that, that on top of that is, you know, when we look at 
what's considered sort of modern sales processes is it's we as long as we still have these these linear stage based processes that we have and that are embedded in CRM systems and you know, people's processes, they haven't changed for decades. They're the same fundamental sales process. Initial initial call, initial qualification, demo, <laughs> presentation, proposal, whatever the order is. If you Google it, you know, the modern sales process, same one I was taught decades ago. Now we've got ways to facilitate it. <coughs> Excuse me, that that didn't exist before. But you know, one of the things I find fascinating that and this is not something that a lot of research has been done in, but I think needs to be looked at is, is I firmly believe that the sort of base unit, base level productivity of an individual seller today, despite the technology, is no greater than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And by productivity, what I mean is I define it a specific way, which is the, the, the amount of revenue generated per hour of actual sales time. And there's no data that exists to tell us that it's gotten better. And so, so if we look no, at the proxies, if we look at the proxies, yeah. like, you know, knowledge worker productivity increases and so on, is what we see, and Paul Krugman has written about this several times in the New York Times, this is, uh, yeah, we saw improvements sort of through the advent of email and high-speed internet. But in the last 20 years, the level of productivity increase among knowledge workers has basically been kind of flat. So we have to assume the same is true with sales. But we are talking about, so th that's an interesting, very interesting point, but productivity versus ethical or customer focused um, sales, uh, those are two very different conversations. Oh, sure. So with the increase in, in technology, you could argue that you could be ruthless and you could be persuasive and you could be guiding somebody down the sales cycle, but just doing it more efficiently. Alternatively, the other conversation could be, well, okay, productivity is one thing, but how do we sell better? How do we be more ethical salespeople? Because your argument stands that we haven't become that much better in the past 20 to 30 years. And that's interesting to me because I do, you, you cannot be denied that the sales cycle, you know, you, you do your, you know, you, top of funnel, you do your discovery, and then you mm. sort of get them through all the way through to negotiate, you know, proposal, negotiation, close all the different steps in sales cycle. Um, yes, yeah, so that it's an easy way to teach over sales. What I want your opinion on is mm -hmm. whether or not you feel as though there's more of there's more of a an intent focus or almost like an empathetic approach to which customers should continue on to the next path in the sales cycle. Whereas if there is no empathetic, uh, you know, cognizance of, 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 is this customer right? Then it's just ruthless, move you on to the next sales, you know, next, next step in the sales cycle, then close you. So this, do you think the sales process is the issue? Or do you think it's the fact that the people that are guiding customers through the sales process um, are not being empathetic to the actual needs of the customer? Does that make sense? That, yeah, why? I mean, I, th I think so. I think <laughs> there are lots of lots of points in there. So, so one is is yeah, I don't think that sellers today are you know any better or worse in terms of their interactions with buyers 
than they were before. And I think that's problematic, right? I think we're agreed. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah it's, and, and surveys such that people have done, which again, I don't believe are hugely scientific, but from Gartner and Forrester and others saying, wow, you know, buyers don't want to deal with sellers anymore. And they still don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think they ever did, quite frankly. What yeah. they do is they want to deal with a seller who can help them achieve what they're trying to get done, right? To help them, you know, define the problem and, and define what's the best outcome for them and help them get that. They, yeah. a, sell, a buyer wants to talk to a seller who can do that. But what this data is coming back and saying about sell, buyers not wanting to talk to, to sellers reflects the fact that they're not getting any value from those interactions. So to me, that argues the fact that we're, we're not getting better uh, we're not necessarily any worse, but we're not not getting any better in that dimension. And now, technology enables buyers to do more of it on their own. Mm-hmm. Thus, they're saying, in the absence of value from a seller, I'm going to proceed myself. And so, I think that that is really sort of the crux of the matter: is we're not creating these buying experiences for the buyer that makes someone invest their time and attention in us as sellers. Okay, and so then. Oh, I was going to say to follow up on that. So then is the buying experience is the issue with the actual sales cycle or is there another component to the buying experience that we could do better? Yeah, I think it's it's to your point about, you know, we don't focus on making the connection at the human level that we need to do. We don't focus on being intentional about how we build trust because we're so uh, animated and driven by our process, right? And meeting our, our metrics, our activity metrics and so on that we put sellers in a nearly impossible position. I mean, think about it. It's, it's not uncommon, let's say, in the SaaS world for uh, an AE to have a requirement to have a what, 5X pipeline coverage in their pipeline f- for their number. Well, what most sellers and sales leaders don't understand is if that's the case, then your win rate, meaning the percentage of the opportunities you close out of your most qualified opportunities, is going to be the reciprocal of your pipeline coverage ratio. So if you say we need 5X coverage, you're dooming sellers to just superficially deal with all their customers, right? And as a result, what we see is they close 20%. Their win rate's 20%. Or, you know, 20 to 25% is very, very, very typical in the SaaS world. And it's like, well, that's a problem. I mean, if you're in sales, which is a performance-based profession, and if we sort of accept the adage that practice makes perfect, if you're only winning one of every five of your opportunities, what are you practicing the most? Practicing, losing. I guess. You're losing. practicing losing. You're practicing building a pipeline just so that so that you can to close lose. that twenty percent. Yeah, to lose basically. Right. You're okay with so that. Why do? But everybody seems to be okay with that. It's like, why? And I'm not okay saying you should that? be okay with that, but yeah, that's what people are but okay with. I have conversations with, for some with CROs where I'm, I'm like, well, what are you, what are you going to do to, you know, here's your win rate. What are you going to do to grow sales this year? We're going to put more stuff in the top of the pipeline because our process, we know it works and it's going to produce a 20% win rate. So, well, hmm, what's the value to you of increasing your win rate 1%, 2%? What's it mean to you? I never think about it. And it's just insanity. <laughs> so we want to give people the ability to feel confident about what they're doing. You, confidence comes from success. Give people the ability to succeed. Let them succeed some more. So instead of engineering our processes to generate 20% win rates, engineer your process to generate a 50% win rate. What will that look like? 
And I can tell you, your sellers will be more and more motivated. They're not going to be experiencing as much burnout. <laughs> I mean, it's, we have the ability to do this. This is part of what I'm talking about this in my new book is like, we need to rethink because we're fundamentally doing things the same way we were doing them for decades and they're not working in better. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, as a leader, you're always on the lookout for more ways to arm yourself with knowledge, the books, the seminars, and most importantly, the podcasts that help you make the best possible decision for you, your company, your customers. Because when you know more, you can apply more and you can grow. With HubSpot CRM platform, you can store, track, manage, and report on all the tasks and activities that make up your relationships with customers. With a bird's eye view over all your customer interactions, HubSpot empowers your decision making like never before. So you can give your business and your customers all the good you've got. Learn how to make your business grow better at HubSpot.com. Okay, so that's a great point. So you're speaking to a CRO. A CRO understands the value of increasing that 20% close rate to 50%. Like you have that conversation. The numbers make sense. So how do you actually accomplish that? What's, what's the actual strategy? Well, we have to start with sort of rethinking how we enable sellers. Okay. So, you know, sort of the common way to, that let's say a enablement person or a you know, sales leader say, look, we've got some shortfalls in, in our performance and our execution. How are we going to make decisions about what we train people and how we upskill our people, how we educate our people? Excuse me. And generally, well, they do. Well, they'll look at the numbers, you know, they'll see what we're doing. You know, could be win rates, could be, you know, no decision rates. It could be whatever. Yeah, we could analyze some lost deals. But the thing that doesn't ever happen is, is no one ever goes back and talks to the customer and said, what's been the experience, your experience with our sellers? Where did we help or where did we hurt in terms of helping you understand what your problem is and helping you define a path forward to achieve your most important outcome, desired outcome? No one sort of starts, let's start with that perspective, what the buyers need from us in order for us to help them better. This is all about listening to your, this is all, this is, it seems like, it seems like such common sense, right? It's all about just listening to the people that you're selling to. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, that's like, that's the core of it though. Sure. But take it to an, a, a further degree is, is, I was having a conversation a couple weeks ago with the senior sales leader that was putting together a job description for a position they were trying to hire for. And as sort of the usual laundry list of things, you know, we're looking for a hunter, we're looking for, you know, aggressive, uh, and then sort of the general sales description. But I said, okay, well, these things that you're saying are a requirement. Have you asked one of your customers what they need your salespeople to be? How, what do they need from your sellers in order to help them move through their process and make their decision to buy from you? What do they need? Never yet. <laughs> I talked to a sales leader said, yeah, we've consulted with our, our buyers about that. And they want an aggressive hunter style sales oh, yeah. role that's going to hunt white ask space. A, ask and... a buyer. You want our guys to yeah. be a hunter, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we want your guys to be, you know, that extrovert that's really push, 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 push us. No. Comfortable with rejection, you know, 40, 50 cold calls a day. <laughs> what they want is, yeah, I summarize it. Yeah, your buyers want curious, open-minded problem solvers. Mm-hmm. 
from. Um, what is it? So the, the actual title of the book, um, we can definitely oh, plug it. Is... Yeah. yeah. Sell without selling out. Sell right. And I want to know what that means. Surprisingly, I have one here. <laughs> um, well, to sell without selling out is to me is we have, we all recognize sort of these conventional say what I call salesy behaviors that, that make buyers cringe. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're starting to sort of catalog some of them. And I talk about it in the book. I have a little chart that compares salesy versus non-salesy. Salesy, what I call it is selling out is, is the salesy, right? Okay. It's, the, it's the behaviors that sort of the persuasion-driven behaviors that make buyers resist and cringe. And we know there are, are, we know they do this, yet we continue to persist. Let me give an example. One example is, is we talk about persuasion all the time. You know, we get people to be better at persuasion. And this is somehow a, a critical sales skill. There was a book published in 2020 by Jonah Berger, a professor at Wharton School, called The Catalyst, is about persuasion. And one of the interesting things he cites in the book is research that shows that as human beings, we, to a person, universally, resist being persuaded. It's innate behavior. We resist persuasion. So it stands the reason that, of course, that we'd say, well, let's make persuasion sort of this hallmark of sales skills we want to train people in. You know, let's put them out in front of buyers, exercising some behavior that buyers universally resist. So what I argue in the book is that there's you know, the opposite of these salesy behaviors, what I call the selling out behaviors, with what I call selling in, which when you think about it is, is all these behaviors that buyers resist that we, we know sort of the stereotypical bad sales behaviors, those are all learned behaviors. Mm -hmm. And the argument that I make in the book is that if you lean into innate human behaviors, connecting with the human being, being curious, being empathetic and understanding, uh, being generous, giving of value, that these are innate human behaviors that we're all wired to do. And if we lean into these and lead with these with our buyers, then we stand a better chance of establishing a trust-based relationship that enables us to influence the choices, trade-offs, and decisions they make. And they're open to that influence. I mean, that's one of the key points is, is that there's a decision a buyer makes when you start dealing with them where they make the decision, I call it the why you question. Why should I invest my time in you? Why should I trust you? Why should I give you my confidence? Why should I listen to you? Is it happens in every, every interaction, every situation you are in with the buyer. And when they answer that question, what they're answering is, am I going to basically give Scott the ability to influence me. That's what they're doing. They're opening the door to your influence. So in order to do that, you have to make that connection. You gotta be interested in the other person. It can't just be about pitching your product. It's about, I wanna understand what you really is most important to you. I'm driven by that. And so I sort of frame the, the, the contrast on stark terms in the book. And I, you know, this is, I think is a disservice we do to sellers is, is they're basically trained to think, sellers, that their job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy their product. Whereas I believe a seller's job is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer and then help them get that. 
And so if you think your job is to go out and persuade somebody, well, it sort of stands to reason that you're going you're gonna to be, be pitch-oriented, right? I got to get my product out there. I got to persuade you that regardless of what your product, your problem is, this is the answer. Whereas if you think your job is to go out and to listen first, to understand what's most important to that buyer, and then put together a plan to help them get that, then you're going to go down a different path. You're going to lean into your curiosity. You're going to lean into make sure you ask the sufficient number of questions that you really understand what this most important thing is. And that you understand it at a level that, that makes the customer feel like you've heard them and understood them. And that you give generously of the value that you need to be able to provide, whether it's through insights or content or whatever form, that helps the buyer make progress toward making their decision. Now, I want to understand one thing when it comes to these conversations that you're having with the buyer. Of course, you still only have so many hours in a day. So it's important yes. that if you spend the time, there still has to be some sort of performance objectives. But I'm curious, mm -hmm. does this conversation now extend to qualifying properly targeting? I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a quality 
qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text 
success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Properly and the importance of measuring intent that a buyer could have so that the conversations are a little bit warmer when you get into them, when I'm getting sure. on the phone for the first time or the Zoom call or whatever. Sure. How important you is that? To, you want to take advantage of every bit of intelligence you can have about the buyer before you have these conversations. I mean, it's, it, I don't want people to get the wrong impression from earlier. It's the problem is not, it's not the technology, it's how we use it, mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, you want to take advantage of, if you have intent data, you want to factor that in. You want to make sure you've done your homework sufficiently before you have those, those first calls. Um, because I believe that you can't predict in advance which of the interactions have the buyer can have the most impact on them. So Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist, psychologist, um, did some research and came up with this, this rule he called the peak end rule. And what that said was that based on people go through an experience when they are coming back to make a judgment or a, a, decision, a decision about the experiences, they basically take into account two primary factors. One is the peak experience or peak event during that experience and the last event in that experience. And if think about that from the perspective of sales and go through the think about the buying experience is you can't predict in advance which interaction you have with a buyer is one that they'll consider the peak event. It could be. I had one client that Years ago, we, we sort of really transformed how they responded to their inbound leads and really beefed up their inside team, brought some real product experts to help with it, where just by getting back to their prospects more quickly with people who really understood the buyer and their needs and could really help them move through their process more quickly, yeah, they doubled the revenue in almost no time. And when you surveyed the buyers... It was all about that, right? Their experience is that first interaction was the peak event for the buyer. It wasn't anything subsequent to that. It's the fact we got back to you, got back to you quickly with somebody who really knew what they're talking about. I felt that was a great use of my time as a buyer to talk with them. Boom. So as, as a seller, you want to take advantage of everything that's available to you to say, yeah, I want to maximize the impact of each of my interactions. So I need to be very thoughtful about it. I need to be intentional about it. I just can't be robotic and sort of roll through my process. I got to treat every customer uniquely and prepare for them uniquely. And when I do that, yeah, there's going to be more value for the buyer in each of those interactions. And value, as I talk about in the book, for me, the baseline measure of value in the buyer's eyes is that as a result of an interaction with you, Scott, they're closer to making a decision after that interaction than they were before that interaction. That they've made progress. That's what buyers want. They want to make progress. If they don't see a return on the investment of their time and attention in you, then they'll stop giving you time. And so to follow up with... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, I say it just sort of becomes sort of the basic way that sellers have to look at every every interaction they have with the buyer is what is the value I'm going to provide? What's the value the buyer needs from me in order to make progress? 
during this interaction. And, and as a result of getting this value, what are they going to commit to doing as the next mm -hmm. step? The reason I, I wanted to go into this is because I think it's interesting because we spoke, we touched on productivity before. Mm. And when you look at the concepts of productivity and efficiency, and then you contrast that with uniqueness and individualness, usually those run contrary. Usually the more unique something is, the less efficient it is. And mm. that's, that's, what I, that's what I was curious about, because if you want to be a top performer, there has to be some velocity to what you're doing. You have to be closing bigger deals or larger deals or more deals than the next person. So mm. how, do you, how do you make sure that you maintain velocity, you maintain productivity, but you still maintain uniqueness? And you kind of mentioned it there. You, you did touch on it. It was every single interaction. You, yeah. you give and deliver the most possible value. And that, in theory, would move things your, along faster than even if you systematize it. Right. That's your baseline is, does this interaction help the buyer move closer to making a decision? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, if you don't know that in advance, if you don't know how that's going to happen in advance, then why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Why are you taking the buyer's time? Why are you taking your time? And this is something, this is the, the mindset that sellers need to have when they go through you know, every opportunity in their pipeline. Or if you're a sales manager, you're going through a, a pipeline review. This is the question you ask your sellers. What value does the buyer need from us now in order to move forward in their process? And if a seller doesn't know, then they need to go back. Keep asking questions, dig deeper. Make sure they really understand this, this, this understanding, I, I'd say there are four main pillars in my book. There are four main pillars of selling in. Connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. And if you've built the connection, if you've built this level of trust, which is basically the customer giving you permission to stick your nose into their business, you know, ask the questions, make sure you understand. Don't just default to your usual set of 10 or 12 questions that you ask, but keep digging till you've until you really feel like you understand, confirm it with the buyer as people are trained to do, but then you have to go a step further. This is where many sellers just stop. They may say, okay, well, I've asked these 10 questions. I'm gonna you know, reflect those back to the buyer. And, but you know, the thing is with the buyers don't always understand completely what the opportunities are or what even the scope of their problem is. So when you get a chance to reflect back to the buyer, Sellers need to get in the habit of saying, okay, now what are we missing? Just when you think we understand everything, what are we missing? Mm -hmm. And that opens up the door again to dig deeper until you really feel like, you, okay, I understand what's most important to the buyer. I understand what's driving the decision. Because in my experience in selling very complex, large-scale deals, as well as small deals early in my career, I learned early on that there's always one thing that's driving the decision more than everything else. And that one thing is usually important to one or more people. So as a seller, as part of your discovery, which is not a one-time event, it's something you do every time you interact with the buyer as you keep asking questions and learning, is you're trying to uncover what that one thing is. What's the thing that's most important to the buyer? And who is it most important to? And so many sellers just don't have a handle on that. And so it's, you know, they're sort of shooting, shooting craps at that point. 
are playing the odds. I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Swag.com. Now, you know, if you've ever received a corporate gift or swag in the past, how many of those gifts did you actually keep? Probably not many, which is probably because the stuff that you got was not so great. I've gotten uh, like a lot of stuff from trade shows and from companies in the past that I've just thrown out the second I get it. So this is why you need to check out swag.com. I've been on the receiving end of getting garbage gifts. I've also worked in companies where I only had access to a really, really small inventory of stuff that I wanted to give my customers and my employees, and I knew that it wasn't going to resonate. I knew that it was going to suck. So what is swag.com? Well, it's like swag upgraded. It's the best place to buy custom gifts and swag that people will actually want to keep. So they sent me a box because obviously they're sponsoring the show and I wanted to see what it's all about. I, you know, I've worked in businesses. I want to make sure that the quality of their stuff actually was up to my standards because I can tell you right now that when I get garbage, it goes right into the trash. It, like, it really goes right into the trash the second I got back from the trade show or the conference or whatever. So I received one of the custom swag boxes from swag.com. I loved the unique packaging, so it was a beautiful unboxing experience. Uh, I love the actual products they sent me, and there's a whole bunch more that obviously they didn't send me, but the stuff that they did send was absolutely beautiful. It was very high quality, and I can only imagine that if I actually got this when I was working for companies, I probably would have actually used it. And to be honest, I'm going to start using them for people that work on my show and in my company as well because I know that this isn't just uh, a novelty gift that somebody's going to throw. It's stuff that they can actually use. They have so many unique and customizable gifts that I've never seen anywhere else. They have custom yoga mats. They have custom Apple AirPods. They even have branded kayaks, which I did not know was a thing. So they carry all these premium brands like North Face, Yeti, Nike, and more. And it's all customizable with your company's logo or artwork. Uh, with swag.com, they take care of all of your swag at their warehouse and they ship it to individual addresses. Or if you prefer, uh, you can just send it to a bulk location in one single shipment. It's easy to manage uh, from their online portal, which you obviously get access to. So if this is something that you think would benefit you. If you have clients or customers or a team and you want to go the extra mile and you actually want to give gifts that people appreciate, which is the whole point of giving these gifts in the first place, go to swag.com uh, for the perfect swag and custom gifts. Right now, they're giving everybody who's a Success Story podcast listener a special offer. It's 10% off your entire order, but only when you go to swag.com slash success and enter promo code success10. Remember, for 10% off, go to swag.com slash success and use promo code SUCCESS10. If, if you were going to hope that a, a seller or a, a sales manager or an entrepreneur or whoever reads this book mm -hmm. um, takes one thing away from the book, what is, what is the main thing that you want that person to take away? Do you want them to, for example, a seller go to a new organization or is it like this is the environment that you should aim to create in your organization in your company i guess i want to look at it from different perspectives yeah. of somebody reading this book and sure. they already have a job or they already manage a team right well i think from a from an individual contributor standpoint and this could be from an entrepreneur too who's you know driving sales in their organization um is to understand what your job is this is the big takeaway your job's not to persuade somebody to buy your product your job is to listen to them, to understand what's the most important thing to them, and then help them get that. That's your job. 
And the way to do that is not through these overly prescriptive persuasion-based tactics, but through leaning into the your innate human side to connect with someone at the human level, to use your curiosity to to navigate through you know, their problem, their situation, make sure you understand what's most important to them, how you can help them get that, and then provide them the value they need in order to help them make that decision. And it's it's much more collaborative. You think about selling not as something you do to something, to someone, but something you do with someone. And so and for I, individual contributors, that yeah. mindset to me is is life-altering for them because they're going to have a choice. You know, every time they have an opportunity to, to take a specific action to say, yeah, do I want to be salesy? Do I want to sell out? Or do I want to lean into human side and sell in? Yeah, for a manager, it's it's a cultural thing. Is because as more and more sellers embrace this way of selling, you're going to get a little bit of pushback. They're going to say, yeah, <laughs> you know, this, this overly prescriptive robotic process you want me to follow, that just doesn't work for me. And I think I can do better if I'm getting the opportunity to experiment and come up with a, a way of selling that's aligned with who I am my character, my values, my strengths. And as a leader, you should want to encourage that. You should want people not to be cookie cutters, uh, clones of each other, but you want people that are motivated to become the best version of themselves. And to do that, you need to give them some autonomy. And and this is, this is you know, I cite this you know, research in the book, but a uh, professor at Harvard Business School, Francesca Gino, written about this is the power of giving people agency over the choices they make about how they sell then they own it right it's not imposing a process on somebody is they they own have ownership in this they're going to be more motivated to want to be on top and stay on top and so it's going to require a little bit of a shift of mindset and manager as well a little bit I don't want to say it's you know it's not old school, but it's it's understand that your, your sellers are sort of like your buyers. As a manager, you want to understand what's most important to your individual sellers, and then say, "How can I help you get that?" That's my job. What do you aspire to, Scott? How can I help you get that? It's not how can I make you make fifty calls. Maybe maybe Scott only needs to make twenty calls, and that's okay. If Scott's delivering, that's fine. But there's this real sense of fear among many sales managers that if people deviate from the process, it's like, I can't have that. That's unpredictable. And it's like, well, that's fine. You're going to get better performance. Deal with it. Deal with people as individuals. And then that's an interesting point. Um, I want to I want to ask some some rapid fire questions at the end. But before sure. before we go into that, there's one point that I thought would be very interesting for somebody who is a sales manager who's listening to that who said, Okay, I'll I'll try and deviate from process that I've done for the past twenty years. But what if somebody isn't performing? What if it's not working? How do I measure what's not working if I don't understand the process anymore? So what are you judging people on? Right? I mean yeah. is is everybody see everybody has their own number. Yeah. Right? Everybody, everybody has their own set of metrics. It's always been the case. Yeah, frustrates you no end to talk to sellers. I'll say, well, what's your win rate? I don't know. What are your conversion rates? It's at your stages. No, I don't know. What's like 
you don't have to be driven by the numbers, but we all have numbers. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about experimentation and improving, become the best version of yourself, it's within the scope of what your numbers are. Yeah, that's it. I sold by and large really large deals, you know, seven figure, eight figure, even nine figure deals. I knew what my my numbers were. I knew what my win rate was, and and I I wanted to maintain those. Mine was different than the guy next to me. And he was good too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was he did it differently. And that's fine. You can accommodate that. This is this I don't understand why managers think that they don't have time to accommodate. You know, it's like you've got nothing but time. If you're a frontline manager, your only job is to help your people succeed. And not succeed by doing it necessarily your way, but helping them learn how to become the best version of themselves. And if that's slightly at odds, so what? As long as people are willing to be held accountable for results. And that's a bargain I always made with bosses throughout my career. It's like, yeah, I may do things a little bit differently, but I'm willing to be held accountable for my results. And I delivered because I, I felt I had ownership in how I was selling. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was, you know, my business, right? When I got started in sales, it was very common. You're taught by your manager. You're the CEO of your patch, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's geography or you don't hear that as much anymore. And we need to enable sellers more and more to think about that as, you know, you are the CEO of that small little business. What are you going to do to make it happen? Because failure is not an option. And the last thing that I noticed, it was very interesting. The four pillars that you mentioned, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity. None of those are focused on, on business objectives. None of those are focused on internal business metrics that will drive Mm -hmm. success. These are all focused on the customer. Yeah. Shocking, huh? <laughs> no, it's very good. Um, okay. Most importantly, if people yes. want to uh, connect with you, get the book, yes. where should they go? All the socials uh, and the dates and all that. Sure. So uh, you can pre-order the book. Well, depending on this airs, uh, yeah. we'll say you can order the book, uh, your favorite online bookseller. And the book is launching February 22nd. Uh, we'll have a little bit of a launch event if people want to participate in that. Um, book is called Sell Without Selling Out, A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms. And if you want to follow me, uh, yeah, I dabble on LinkedIn a bit. Um, <laughs> Scott's laughing. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of like me. We're there all the time. Um, got a podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. Uh, gosh, we're up to 1,000-plus episodes. And encourage people to check that out. Amazing. Okay. And we'll you can visit my website, that. andypaul.com. That's that's where you get everything else. If you yes. wanna if you wanna find anything, go there. Okay. Um, let's do a couple rapid fire. Sure. Uh, biggest challenge that you've overcome in your personal or professional life. What was that? How did you overcome it? Hmm. Gosh. Um <laughs> which one? <laughs> pick pick one. Pick one. One that one that comes to the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> well, I think yeah, I mean, I think the hardest thing in you know, personal life was just, you know, a divorce. I mean, that that uh, impacts everything. Impacts everything you do. And, uh, you know, my first marriage was, you know, these things don't happen overnight. They evolved. And, yeah, I just look back and think, yeah, there was a period of time there where I was, I thought I was operating at peak performance, but I really wasn't in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And, and also people could see. So, oh, Yeah. So resolving all that and um, coming out the other end, a divorce, great co-parenting 
uh, between the two of us, uh, great relationship. Yeah, I think that's that's non-business, but it's it's uh, something I was proud of. Yeah, good, good. Um, if you had to choose one person, there's obviously been many people, but one person who has had a huge impact on your life, who was that and what did they teach you? Well, I really think <laughs> it's uh, my wife, uh, second wife. Um, somebody we had known each other forever, reconnected after 30 years, one of those stories. Um, but she's supported me down this journey that I've taken the last eight, nine years of, yeah, exploring writing books and the podcast and, and everything else I've done with the business that was just sort of a, a right turn. And, um, yeah, would not have been possible without her support. Um, a book, podcast, something you'd recommend people go check out? Uh, other than my own. <laughs> other, yeah. than your, other than your own, <laughs> yes. Than own. <laughs> well, you know, I think there's a couple books I'd recommend. One is um, A Moment to Think, I believe it's titled, by Juliet Funt. It talks about the importance of building white space or thinking time into your day. Um, and for busy people, I think hugely important. Um, you know, I love Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think it's something I refer to in, in my book. Um, yeah, I think that's a guide that people should pick up and, and take very seriously because he writes very well about, about habit formation. And what's the other part of that question? Oh, no, just you, you okay, got two of it already. You're good. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can list off more if you want, but no, no, no you're good. You're good. Um, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Get a degree in engineering. <laughs> it's not a bad. It's not a bad. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, very good. And then last last question: What does success mean to you? Control over my life, my time. That's for me. Is is yeah, I've been extremely fortunate in my career. I mean, I've worked hard and and uh, but yeah, for me, it was always about having control over my life. And, and uh, when I started my own company, I started my company because I, I wanted to take a step back actually. You know, I've been traveling extensively for 15 years internationally and was missing a lot of things in my kids' life and, and lives. And, and so, you know, made the choice to sort of step back a bit. You know, I was fortunate I had the ability to be able to do that. I mean, I still was working and building my business, but at a much different pace. Um, so for me, that's, yeah, that's what success has been about is, is control. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform. Accounting, finance, the works. 
one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs, no more servers, no more updates, just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win, efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 